Welcome to Cincy Reformed. I'm Pastor Brandon, and today we are going to be discussing fasting. Uh, fasting is something that uh, you see not only all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, but you see it pretty pervasive in the early church. You see it, uh, the church fathers speaking about fasting and, and uh, lumping fasting with almsgiving or with prayer, and fasting formed the early Christian piety, you might say. But sadly, in our day, the practice of fasting has been on the wane. And so in this episode, Pastor Zach is going to walk us through a biblical view of fasting. Let's hear it together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, and then Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secrets. And your Father who sees in secrets will reward you. Chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to have our summary of Scripture today from our own uh, uh, pastor's uh, Pilgrim's Catechism. And so I'm going to ask that question in his uh, little book there, and then you can respond, join with me, responding uh, with the answer. I think it's an excellent uh, definition for us. So question 34, what is fasting? Fasting is abstaining from food or some enjoyment for a period of time for spiritual concerns. Focusing on Christ and his purposes in the world. Well, may the Lord bless this time of teaching. A couple of weeks ago, when I went through uh, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, you might have felt, as I felt a little bit, uh, uncomfortable. Uncomfortable because, you know, I've established a habit of giving and a habit of praying. But there was a certain habit there that's not quite so regular in my own personal life. And I would imagine that's probably the case for many of us in this church. When we think about Christian piety and our lives lived before the Lord in anticipation of the feast in the new creation, very often we're not thinking about fasting in this creation. We oftentimes think of fasting as something that the Roman Catholics do, during that season called Lent by simply avoiding beef or sausage or something like that and by having fish fries on Fridays. Now just a note for you, I'm not preaching this sermon because of their season of Lent going on right now. That has nothing to do with why I'm doing this, but simply because of the whole thing this past week in terms of classes and I had to return to some material I had already worked from. But one of the things that probably caused some discomfort for us is that Jesus alongside 
his teaching on alms and his teaching on prayer says, when you, when you fast, that assumes that the practice that was occurring in the time before Jesus would to, in some way, shape, or form be continued after Jesus. He's addressing his kingdom. We're not dispensationalists who believe that he's speaking only to Jewish people, not the Gentile church. No, we believe that Christ is speaking to and instructing in this sermon his new creation kingdom that is coming to bear and coming to realization even now within his church. When you fast, he says. When you fast. So, I want us to ask a few questions today about this. I refrained from this a few weeks ago because I knew I could not uh, treat it with much depth. I was planning on doing it sometime in the future. Well, the time is quicker than I thought. The time is now. So let's ask the first question. What is fasting? What is fasting? If you go throughout all the biblical data and the places where it's most clear in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, what is abundantly clear is that at the very heart of fasting is the abstention from food. Abstaining from food. Ordinarily, this is abstaining from all forms of food. That's the ordinary way of thinking about fasting. It's abstaining from all forms of food. And actually you see as well that oftentimes it's noted explicitly in texts that speak about fasting that the fasting person did not only abstain from food, but also from water, from drink as well. So, ordinarily it is from food entirely. You may also abstain from drink entirely as well. Within various texts that speak about and even allude clearly to fasting, you will find also that, as Pastor Brandon put in his catechism, that other enjoyments as well may be abstained from. Now this is not like getting to Lent and just giving up chocolate or something like that, something cheap. But abstaining from something that is costly. So abstaining from something that matters. So, for example, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel avoided applying oil to his body. That was a revitalizing thing, a cleansing thing. So he was allowing his body to basically deteriorate in a sort of fast. He also abstained as well in the book of Daniel from fine food. Not from all food, but from fine food. The nicer things of life. The finer gifts that God gives us, he abstained from. We might think about Uriah the Hittite and how when he came back from battle, uh, when David summoned him back, he abstained from marital relations with his wife. Why? Well, his, co his soldiers that he was fighting with were on the field. It's a time for sorrow. So he, he um, abstained then from all forms of marital relations. This is the kind of thing that Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband and wife might abstain voluntarily for a time to devote themselves greater to prayer. You can also see that sleep can be part of the fasting uh, regimen. Anna the prophetess and King Darius abstained from sleep. So ordinarily it's food, oftentimes drink, and it can also be from other sorts of earthly 
enjoyments. That is what fasting is. The second question, why should I fast? Why should I? Well, we've already established that Jesus expects you to, just as he expects you and I to fast, or to give, and to pray. We are expected to fast. Matthew 9 breaks that out for us further. Why should I fast? Well, because Christ is not with us. He's not with us. When he was on earth with his church embodied, they could not. It was a time to feast. It was a time to celebrate. And Jesus was leading the party. But now he's not here. The bridegroom has been taken away from us. And that they will come, according to the book of Revelation, when you and I will sit around the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will feast, and we will celebrate, and we will do it forever and ever. And indeed, our Lord's Day is a form of fest, a feast that anticipates the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we are here communing with Christ the Spirit makes Christ specially present here for a great feast. But we recognize as well the truth of his bodily ascension. He is not here. And even the Lord's Supper is but a foretaste, but a morsel. It is as if the Spirit takes something from that table in heaven, brings it down here to the table on earth to give us a taste a morsel of what we will enjoy for all eternity. It's just a morsel here. It's a bit of communion with God through the body and blood of Christ. The great feast is in the future, and so there's a sense in which now, in this age, we are longing for God, hungering for Christ. Our appetites for Christ must not be lost. The bridegroom is not with us, so we should fast. As we think about other reasons to fast, and these are all interrelated here, one is to humble our soul. To humble our soul. I had some uh, lengthy quotations from a Dutch theologian named Wilhelmus Abrakel. If you'd like some of those later, email me. I can send them to you. As he speaks about the interrelatedness of body and soul. We like to separate those from each other. Post-enlightenment, post-Descartes, we separate soul from body, and we do not allow them to have the most intimate of unions. When we think about humbling ourselves in body, which is what fasting is, we also then think about humbling our soul. It is a humbling of our entire person that occurs when we fast. In that state of humility... It could be because we need to repent of specific sins. It could mean, be because we simply need to become more and more humble and repentant in general for our sins. So something specific, something general. But the basic point here is that we ought to humble ourselves. In this place of humility, we better understand the gospel. That our merit is not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. We might also humble ourselves because of some calamity. Some calamity. Many have used times of warfare or natural disaster to call for times of not just prayer, but fasting. So the bridegroom is not with us. 
We want to humble our souls. Why else should we fast? Well, to train ourselves to seek first God and His kingdom and not earthly pleasures as an animal might. This is something that if you read me, the church fathers, notably Tertullian, you will see this great concern where they look at the entire person as interconnected. It's actually quite humorous in a way. When you read uh, Tertullian, he basically makes the point that if you're someone who's given to eating a lot, you're probably given to a lot of, um, uh, of sexual sin as well because your stomach is connected down here. And so he's making this connection, however, and trying to explain a moral connection that he sees in his experience. That people who give themselves over to all the finer things, the earthly things, with free abandon, well, they're going to give themselves over in free abandon to other things as well. These things are interrelated. If you have a desire for something and you want to meet that desire like that, rather than train yourself to suppress it, well, then there are going to be other places in your life where you're not training yourself to suppress distinctly immoral desires. So to train yourself with some earthly things helps you with other things. Tertullian spoke about how we fast in a way in terms of our sexuality by being monogamous. In a similar sort of way, we fast in terms of food. We are careful in, in, in moderation. Do we eat and do we drink? Be, live, living a moderate lifestyle, one that is trained and chastened, is good for us. This can apply, I think, in our day to many things. We are in a time of creaturely comforts that mankind has never known before. You want something, it's easy to get it. You want something very simple, like a nice piece of beef from the grocery store. How many of us are really so concerned about buying that? Probably not a whole lot of us. We just get what we want. We have a craving, we satisfy it. We're out driving, we're a little bit grumbling in our tummy, right through a drive-thru. We satisfy our cravings immediately. We feel like we want to buy something. We grab our smartphone, scroll, 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 purchase. We have a sexual urge and scroll, scroll, scroll. There it is as well. We are so quick to satisfy the urges that we have in our lives now because we are given immediacy through smartphones, through wealth. Fasting helps us learn not to give in to the culture of immediacy and the culture of meeting our every longing and urge. Fasting trains us, humbles us, directs us to hunger for God more than hungering for things on earth. So why should we fast? Christ is not with us. Why should we fast? To humble our soul. Why should we fast? To train ourselves to seek Christ's kingdom, not earthly pleasures as our great desire. Final question to ask, how should I fast? How? Well, there can be different kinds of fasts. There can be, on one hand, public fasts. There can also be private fasts fasts. A public fast would be the sort of thing that we do each year. Well, last year's the first year, so I can't quite say each year yet, but that, we, that I hope we do each year, which is on the National Day of Prayer, 
to not only have prayer services because the nation, our, our governing officials ask us to pray for the nation, but also to make that a day of fasting as well. So we spend that day praying and fasting. That's a, that would be a public fast. Public because it's part of our church doing it publicly together. Okay? There can also be private fasts. And that would be within the context of you as an individual Christian, fasting, or maybe your family has a day of fasting or a group of friends uh, fast together. Again, Abrakel breaks that out for us quite well. In different ways, we might think about fasting. It is okay to speak to a small group of your friends and do that together and encourage one another. It is okay to do that as a family group. What's not okay is advertising it all over Facebook and saying, look at me, I fast, or making a big deal about it. It can be public or private fasting. How should I fast? Well, I would encourage you to refrain from all food if possible. Where possible, refrain from all food. Consider other places as well in your life where God's gifts are becoming too necessary for you. Is shopping too necessary for you? Is alcohol too necessary for you? Is your smartphone too necessary for you? Is fill in the blank too necessary for you? Something that is costly. Not just like giving up something you hardly have anyway, but something that you really want. That is also a way, a method, as we think about how to fast. But as I say, if possible, give up all food or even all water. Notice, do not compromise your work, because that's how you love your neighbor and your family. Don't compromise that. Don't compromise your physical safety. If you are in a vocation, a job that requires you to do a lot of manual labor, then it's probably highly unwise for you to fast from food the entire day and from drink. Probably better approach would be another approach that was used and recommended by Tertullian to simply eat raw vegetables all day instead. You're fasting from the finer things. You're eating only raw things, things that are not so tasty. You're not slathering butter on your bread, but just plain bread. It's a very ancient Christian practice. If you need to have some kind of food, then do it in that way, where you're still, in a sense, humbling and afflicting yourselves. How else? Well, don't appear gloomy, and don't announce it on the 6 o'clock news that you are fasting. How long should we do this? Well, I would say ordinarily a 24-hour period is wise. Most often it's done from evening to evening. So you stop one evening eating, and then you can resume eating the very next evening. The thing about that is that you will then um, have the time of wakefulness where you are able to pray and be humbled and then have a little bite before bed, basically, the next, the next evening. Doing that in, in moderation, of course. If you desire to do a multi-day fast, fast, then I would recommend that you do so with the vegetable diet that I mentioned beforehand. Rather than abstaining from food for day after day after day, that is unwise. Christ's 40 days, he was miraculously upheld by the Spirit. That is not a prescription for you to go 40 days without food and water. Okay? Do not say your pastor told you to do that when you end up in the hospital, because I am not telling you to do that. If you're going to do that multi-days, have some food, have some drink, 
but keep it in moderation, very low moderation. Other times we might think about fasting as when days when the consistory calls for it. So, for example, the day of prayer. It would also be wise for us to follow the apostolic example that as we begin to think about having additional officers in our church and to have a vote for additional officers, it would be wise for us before a Sunday vote to spend Saturday fasting and praying for such a vote. You might also in your life make it a, a regular practice of piety. If you read the one of the earliest, if not the earliest, post-apostolic document called the Didache, the teaching. This is not part of the canon of Scripture, but it's probably written about when John the Apostle was still alive. The Didache recommends that Christians fast every Wednesday and every Friday, two days a week. The Jewish practice at the time was to fast two other days of the week. So don't be like the Jews. We said, don't be like the Jews. He didn't say, stop fasting. He said, just do it on Wednesday and Friday instead. Okay? So again, we're not getting rid of that practice, but such a way of fasting, a regular practice, a weekly practice even, might be advisable. Last thing about the timing here as we think about how should I fast. Do not fast on the Lord's Day. Do not. As our Heidelberg Catechism calls it, this is the festal day of rest. The festal day. The day to eat. The day to feast. The day to have one more plate. One more helping of beef. The day to have the finer things. The day to rejoice before the Lord with his many good gifts. Why? Because on that day, the gifts of Christ is most clearly realized for us. Christ is delivered to us in word and sacrament. So how should we spend the day? Well, feasting and celebration. So do not feast, I would encourage you, on the Lord's Day. So as we wrap this up, I want to encourage us to take this seriously, to develop and work to develop an appetite for Christ and his kingdom. Because right now, unlike ever before, the things of the world are ready to satisfy us. And as we look around American society, you see creaturely comforts abounding, and you see a departure from biblical Christianity like we've not seen since our founding. Fasting will help us to avoid that allure. Fasting will help us to avoid that attraction. It will train us, prepare us, humble us, and give us that hunger for Christ and the new creation reality that is coming because the feasts of this age are nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits us. Amen. Please join with me on page 9 in your bulletins. Let us uh, pray together. Gracious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for having established your covenant with believers and their children. For as you have told us, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This promise you have not only signified and sealed by holy baptism, but daily proved by perfecting your praise through the mouths of children 
and so putting to shame the wise and understanding of this world. Continue to establish your saints in this faith throughout their lives. So give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given us and to instruct our children in your knowledge and fear until they have reached complete maturity. All of this we ask in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.